Well, good morning to you and uh, looking forward to another day as we go through studying the Word of God and I uh, hope you're looking forward to this this morning and uh, or whenever you're watching this, wherever around the world you are and whatever time you're watching it. Uh, I really do enjoy these, uh, doing these for you and uh, just quickly, as I always say, if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, please go ahead and do that for all the content that I create. Uh, you can follow my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards. Uh, that's a different one than my personal one. And uh, also my Instagram page, which I only have one of, which is AP Richards. And I post all these videos, all this content on those three so you can like and comment, subscribe and share them. Uh, and that's what they're there for. They're there to share. So uh, please comment. Uh, your comments really do encourage other people. Uh, I, some of you send me messages, personal messages of, of that that I wish you would share with everybody else because I, I read it and go, oh, that's so encouraging to me. I wish everybody else could read that. So now we're continuing our journey through the book of Colossians today. Now, I've made a decision as I was preparing this that I'm going to split up the remaining chapters of the book of Colossians into two studies per chapter. The reason for that is, is that there's just too much doctrine and theology in these. They, I just feel like they'd be too long if I tried to do the whole chapter and do everything justice the way I think that it should be done. So I'm going to break them up into natural uh, breaks within uh, the actual chapters themselves. So today we're going to be looking at chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10, Colossians chapter 2, and then uh, then the next video we'll do verses 11 to 23. And we'll do that as we continue through the whole book of Colossians. Uh, it really is uh, doctrinal meat and theological meat for us to understand. Actually, what it is, it's the, it's the, it's the theological meat on the doctrinal bone. How's that? Uh, it, it allows us to understand why we believe what we believe about Jesus and who Jesus is. The whole point of Colossians, Paul gets a call from Epaphras. Epaphras says, I've, you know, I've set up the church after getting saved under your ministry. I set up the church in Colossae. Uh, it started off really well, but then they started to mix in paganism and mysticism and Jewish mysticism and all these other things. And, and now it's not just salvation through grace through Jesus. And I don't know what to do. So Paul writes a book called Colossians to a group of people he's never met before. And he's basically clarifying the completeness of Christ. And so in this chapter, in chapter two, he's going to start to answer the heresy that he has been told by Epaphras that is being spoken in Colossae. So let's start off with verse one of chapter two. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. Laodicea was uh, another, another part uh, of modern day Turkey, which is where Colossae was, Galatia, that whole region. Laodicea was only 15 miles from Colossae. So he says, I want you to know the great conflict I have for, for, for you and those 15 miles away and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, remember, these people are not Jewish. This is the, the difference between the book of Galatians and Colossians is the audience was different. And in Colossae, it was just purely Gentiles uh, who had then started to hear about Jewish teaching after they had uh, accepted Christ. Now, the great conflict that Paul's talking about here was a conflict inside of him that was really a combination of his heartfelt care for them as well as him entering into genuine spiritual warfare. That was the great conflict. 
And he used uh, athletic imagery in Colossians chapter 1, and he continues that athletic imagery here with a sports metaphor of great conflict. Uh, Now, what's important to understand is that even as Paul's authority extended to those he had never met in the church in Colossae, it extends to us. I never met the Apostle Paul, but his his authority and what he's written in the Word of God, the 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 the, uh, the wonderful Word that is made flesh in Jesus, uh, it has the same authority to you and to me as it did to the church in Colossae. Okay, let's let's move on. Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is just a massive couple of verses, I've got to be honest with you. Um, Talks about that their hearts would be encouraged. Paul wanted this because he was concerned about their enthusiasm. He knew that people who are... You know, Christians who then become discouraged and downcast are very easy prey for the world and for the enemy and and for their own flesh. And that's why he said it's important for you to be knit together in love. Because uh, he wasn't just concerned about their enthusiasm, he was also concerned about their unity. And, and unity, he knew, would only come through love. It wouldn't come through them being coerced to be unified. So then he goes on to talk about attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of this understanding to the knowledge of the mystery. Paul wanted this because he was also concerned, not just about their enthusiasm and their unity, but also about their understanding. He knew that their unity and the steadfastness uh, of their faith was not just a matter of love, uh, but also of growing together in God's truth. And the true wisdom that Paul wanted them to know in Jesus is what would bring them together. In fact, it would knit them together in love instead of dividing them, which is what false wisdom was going to do. So for Paul, real riches were found in one place, and that was in the full assurance of God. Many people lack full assurance about the character of God. And, and, and many Christians are unconvinced that even God is a good God or he's a loving God. Um, other Christians lack full assurance of their salvation and they wonder if their Christian life is real and are they really saved. Listen, great freedom and confidence comes when we come to the full assurance of who Jesus really is. Uh, What is the knowledge and mystery of God? The term mystery of God is used in a few different ways in the New Testament. Here, Paul uses the term regarding the character and the person of God, which is something we could not know unless it was revealed by him, Jesus. Now, the word Christ uh, is in the same case as the word mystery in the same verse, which is, which is, which is interesting uh, when you start to look at this. Um, so what it does is it, it allows us to understand that the mystery is actually in Christ. Um, now, there are three different mysteries described in uh, the, the passage from 1 Colossians 24 to 2, uh, Colossians 2 verse 3. Th- these are the three mysteries. The mystery of the church as the body of Christ, for which uh, you know, Paul suffered and served. 
that's Colossians 1, 24 to 26. There's the mystery of the indwelling Christ, how Christ is in us. The hope of glory for each individual believer, Colossians 1, 27. And then this third mystery, which is the mystery of the revealed Jesus, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, which is in the beginning of Colossians chapter 2. Now, uh, we have to understand what Paul was saying here is that Christ is where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And it's an important idea that Paul has in the, in the letter here to, to the church in Colossae because Paul was refuting here some of the bad teaching that was troubling the church in this area because they were influenced by teachers who told them to seek treasures of wisdom and knowledge, but not to seek them in Jesus. And Paul said, you're only going to find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus. Now, when Paul said that this wisdom is hidden in Christ, he used the ancient Greek word apokufros. Barclay, William Barclay says this, his very use of that word is a blow aimed at the Gnostics. Gnostics believed that a great mass of elaborate knowledge was necessary for salvation. That knowledge they set down in their books, which they called apokufros, because they were barred to ordinary people. Paul wanted everybody to know that real wisdom is not hidden in secret books. It's deposited in Christ and hidden in him so that everybody can access it. When Paul describes here the truth of God with words like riches and treasure, he's reminding us that God's truth is precious and it's worthy of sacrificial seeking on our part. Okay, so let's go on here to verse four. Now this I say, lest any anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Uh, the, the lure of hidden and deep wisdom and knowledge can be strong and it can also be deceptive. And Paul didn't say that they had already been deceived. He was clearly, he, but he saw the danger of them about to become deceived and he wanted to warn them about it. And, and now this concept might sound simple, but people who are deceivers are deceptive. Okay, I know that might sound obvious, but we, don't, we, we forget about it. They don't announce their false doctrine as false doctrine. They don't, they don't say, I'm about to deceive you now. And, and often deception, this is where deceptions are worse than lies. And I'll tell you why. Because it's so similar to the truth that it is dangerous because it lures us away from the truth as opposed to directly confronting it. And that's what Paul was starting to really get concerned about here. For verse five, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he says here, I'm absent in the flesh, but I'm with you in the spirit. Paul's sense of being spiritually present, uh, um, William Bruce says this, Paul's sense of being spiritually present with his absent friends could be extraordinarily strong and vivid. Perhaps the most remarkable example is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3 to 5, where he speaks of himself as present in spirit at a church meeting in Corinth at a time when he was actually a resident of Ephesus. Paul had 
a way of feeling and sensing in the spirit as if he was in another place. So this was a strong statement he's making here. I'm with you in spirit. It wasn't just, we say that, oh, I'm with you in spirit, just praying for you, just with you in spirit. But Paul really sensed that he physically was there in his spirit. Now he says, I'm rejoicing this to your good order. So he wanted to give them a little bit of hope. Uh, they were under serious danger, but they were still in good order. Why? Because they displayed the steadfastness of their faith. Now, according to Curtis Vaughan, the words order and steadfastness are both military words. Uh, he, Vaughan says this, he sees the situation of the Colossians as being like that of an army under attack and affirms that their lines are unbroken, their discipline is intact, and their faith in Christ is unshaken. Uh, so you can see this is the imagery here that Paul is trying to create. Verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So Paul uses a very curious combination, and actually, to be honest with you, a very strange combination of metaphors. As Christians, we walk, but we're also rooted, and we also are built up. So the metaphors, are, uh, they're definitely mixed, but the message is clear. You need to be established, but then keep growing. Um, so you know, you, you've got here the, 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 the concept of us being like a, a plant, and then you've got us being like a building. Uh, one needs to be rooted, one needs to be have foundations. The, the bottom line is, is don't stop where you started. That's the point. And uh, William Clark says this, in the one case, they are to bear much fruit. In the other, they are to grow up to be a habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. The false teaching among the Colossians was marked by this uh, emphasis on philosophy and an empty deceit. Most of all, it was, it was according to the tradition of man and men. Basically, you, know, it, 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 you could see man's flesh in it, but you couldn't see God in the philosophy. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with philosophy as long as it's philosophy rooted in God and Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like if our philosophy is rooted in that, there's nothing wrong with that. If your philosophy is rooted in how you think. So this is where the danger of Christianity is for people even now is when they start sentences in their mind or verbally that start with things like this. Well, I can't imagine a God that would ever do X. Well, I can't imagine that if God is love, that he would be okay with that. Well, I can't imagine that. Well, now you've got a philosophy that's dependent on whether you can imagine it or not. And God is either God or he's not God. <laughs> and, and, and I'm actually thankful that I'm not God and that you're not God because we'd all be in trouble if I was or you were. Uh, the philosophy that threatened the Colossian Christians was a very eclectic mix, very similar to what we live in today. They had Gnosticism, they have Greek philosophy, they had local mystery religions, they had Jewish mysticism. And the philosophy that was threatening the church in, Coloss in Colossae was so dangerous because it, was, it wasn't obviously sinful or, uh, or giving permission to do things that were obviously wrong. It was actually very high sounding and, and actually seemed quite intelligent. 
Now, let me explain to you a little bit about what Gnosticism is, because it's very important for you to understand that as part of your understanding of what other people believe or what was contrary to the word of God. Gnosticism taught that God, as a perfect spirit, could not come into direct contact with the material world. So Paul takes care of this point to point out that Jesus is God and he came in the body of his flesh. That was in Colossians 1, 19 to 22. Then Gnosticism taught that since God could not have direct contact with the material world, that God himself did not create the world, but he worked through lesser spirits or angels. Well, Paul takes care of that to show that Jesus was the creator of the world in Colossians 1, 15 to 16. Gnosticism and actually some forms of Jewish mysticism uh, as, as, a, as distinct from Judaism, uh, they both greatly esteemed uh, these supposed mediators, uh, angels. They considered them to be angel, angelic beings of sort. Paul was very careful to warn the church in Colossae that angels should not be worshipped. And he's about to go on and talk about that at the end of, or further on in, into chapter two. And the connection to Jewish mysticism, so we just talked a little bit about Gnosticism, the connection to Jewish mysticism that Paul's talking about here is, is in a couple of areas. One, Jewish influence on Christianity emphasized dietary laws. Paul took care of that to say that, that Christians were not under dietary laws. They could do it if they wanted to, but it didn't save them. And he talked about that also in Colossians chapter 2. And then also further on in Colossians chapter 2, we see Jewish influence on Christianity is uh, in Colossae was uh, it emphasized an observance of certain days being, and you were obligated to celebrate them. Paul takes care of that to say, no, Christians are not under obligation to celebrate those days. Nothing wrong if you do, but you're not under obligation and it's not going to save you. Now, then Paul goes on here in verse 8 to talk about uh, to, to be care, be aware of the traditions of men. The Colossian heresy promoted itself as very traditional. It was very noble. And it could trace many of its ideas back to generations and traditions among the Jews and the Greek philosophers. And Paul here warns that the tradition of men has no equal authority to the word of God. Which is why he then goes on to say, now it's not just about the, the uh, tradition of men, it must be according to the basic principles, sorry, it must not be according to the basic principles of the world. The ancient Greek word translated basic principle, principles is the word stokoio or stokia. Uh, I'm not sure what, my, what the pronunciation is. And this noun means primarily things that are placed side by side in a row, and it's used to talk about the letters of the alphabet, the, a, the ABCs, uh, one thing after another. Because of this association with fundamental elements, this word, uh, storkea, actually came to also refer to the basic elements of you know, uh, earth, water, air, and fire. So many ancient religions thought of the world as a very dangerous place, threatened by spiritual spiritual forces that they called elements or elemental forces. Um, and they thought that somebody could be protected from these dangerous spiritual forces either by worshipping them or by finding protection under a greater God or a, like little g God or deity or spiritual power that was superior to these elements. Now, common to both Jews and pagans was the idea of cause and effect, very similar to sowing and reaping, but a twisted version. Uh, and, and in that sense, there's a place where um, 
we they lived under the idea that, and we kind of do this now too, we live under the idea that we get what we deserve. When we're good, we, we, then we deserve to receive good. When we're bad, we deserve to receive bad. Karma, almost, you know. Paul warns the Colossians to not subject themselves to this because what it does is a thinking like that eliminates grace. It eliminates the possibility of God giving you something good when you don't deserve it. If you only get good because you deserve good, now grace can't exist because grace is about giving you something good when you don't deserve it. And so Paul says, I want you to consider yourself dead to these basic principles because otherwise you'll never be able to live under grace. Verse nine, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is a very bold, dramatic declaration of the full deity of Jesus Christ. Since all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus, then he, he's not just a little bit of God or kind of God or almost all God. He's everything. The false teaching among the Colossian church was something very similar to the early form of Gnostic heresies that was actually going to come later. And those Gnostic heresies made a very radical separation between the spiritual and the material. And that's why Paul needed to make it clear that all the fullness of the Godhead was in Jesus bodily, not in some strange mystical sense. And, and John also dealt with this strange teaching in 1 John chapter 4. Now, a false teaching related to this in the early church was called docetism. And it claimed that Jesus actually had no human body. It just seemed like he had a human body. Now, another false teaching of that time was Serinthianism. And it said that Jesus the man was separate and distinct from Jesus the Spirit of Christ, or just the Spirit of Christ was separate from Jesus. So Paul says, no, 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 you are complete in him because he's the complete deal. Uh, David Guzik says this, this can only be true because Jesus is truly God. If he were not God, we couldn't be complete in him. Anything that says we are not complete in Jesus also takes away from the deity of Jesus. Anything that takes, says we are not complete in him also takes away from the deity of Jesus. If all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and as believers we are united to him in a faith relationship, then we are also complete in him. Therefore, there was no need to go to the false promises and the attractions presented by false teachers among the Colossians. You are complete in him. Paul says that this is a fact to be enjoyed. It is not a status to be achieved. Okay, verse 10, as we get to the end of this section, verse 10. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In so many New Testament passages, the, the words principality and power describes the ranks of angelic beings, uh, either faithful angelic beings or fallen angelic beings, those ones that went with Lucifer. Uh, you can read about that in Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 6. And Paul here declares Jesus' authority over all spirit beings, those who are fallen and those who have stayed faithful. And the false teaching among the Colossian Christians emphasize that these lesser spirit beings, these angels, uh, should be lifted up. They should be emphasized. That, that, was, that was what the concentration should be. But Paul says, no, no, no. 
Jesus is far above him, uh, far above them, and he's the one that you should emphasize. He's the one that's primary above above all. Okay, and he's the only way that we can be complete in the full Godhead is through Jesus. So, what's my observation uh, from this particular first half of Colossians chapter two? It's this: it was and always will be easy to be deceived if we are not rooted in Jesus, his true divinity, and his word. And that's why I'm glad that you're following along with me as we travel through the word of God, because that helps us stop being deceived, because we're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we would live in a state of constant revelation of Jesus and our completeness in him. In your name we pray. Amen.